extremely dysfunctional. You had uh, a dad who loved one son more than another. You had a mom who loved one son more than another. You had lies. You had deception. You had threats of murder. You had stealing. You had two daughters. One of them was extremely attractive. The other one, not so much. And what ended up happening was our hero, Jacob, ended up marrying those sisters. One sister was named Rachel, who we truly loved. Rachel was super attractive. The other one was named Leah. He did not love her that much. She was not very attractive. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that Leah was hated by Jacob. Doesn't mean he literally hated her, but the love that he had for Rachel was so much more than the love that he had for Leah that it appeared to Leah to be hatred. She experienced it that way. Well, what ended up happening is that Jacob, Leah, and Rachel started having children. And on top of the fact that Jacob was married to Leah and Rachel, he also basically was having children with their helpers. Okay, you would have maids. So Rachel had a maid and Leah had a maid, and Jacob ended up having children with them too. So he's got kids with four women in this family. Super dysfunctional. You think your family's dysfunctional? Well, I don't think you've got four women living under the same roof with a bunch of kids, okay? Now, Rachel didn't have a bunch of children. She had a boy named Joseph. Now, you can imagine, because Rachel is Jacob's favorite, that Joseph would then be his favorite son. Does that make sense? That's exactly what happened. Now, we're, we're tracking with Jacob. Let's go to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to see how this uh, unique family arrangement um, manifests itself in the life of our hero, Jacob. <coughs> Genesis chapter 37, starting from verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. That was the helpers. Remember I said that the two, the two sisters had two helpers. They were named Bilhah and Zilpah. And his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So they're all out there in the family business working the sheep. And Joseph comes back and says, Dad, uh, they're not doing well. They're, uh, they're stealing from you. You're just not doing a very good job. Now, how in the world do you think that those brothers reacted to Joseph? In the hood, we used to say, this dude is dry snitching. You know what dry snitching is? Dry snitching, Cassandra knows. Dry snitching is what happens when you tell on somebody and nobody even asked you. It's like, why would you, why would you say that? Nobody even asked you. It's one thing when the cops come after you and say, hey, were you doing this and that thing? Now you're just a snitch. But when you go to the police and say, hey, we were doing this, that's dry snitching. All right, I'm just educating y'all on the way. All right. So J Joseph goes and dry snitches on his, uh, on his brothers, right? They don't like him. Now look at this. Now Israel, remember Israel is Jacob's, Jacob's other name. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now this is very ironic. Because Jacob knows the pain 
of a father who does not love you as much as his brother. Remember, Jacob, his brother Esau, was loved more by his father Isaac. So Jacob knew what it was like to have a dad prefer one of your brothers above you. Jacob his entire life was looking for the blessing of his father and now when it's his turn to do right by his kids he turns around and does the exact same thing. But he does it even worse. Look what happens. He made him a robe of many colors. Okay? Now here's what happens. When you're out there in the ancient Near East, you're out there farming and, and shepherding and all that stuff. The weather's horrible. You're out in the desert. You need clothes. Okay? So you need clothes. Now, everybody would basically have a wool tunic and you'd go out there and you do your work. Well, that wasn't good enough for Jacob. Jacob wants Joseph to go out there in the desert in some Jordans and all the rest of it. So he makes Joseph this coat of many colors. It took a lot of time, dye the wool, do all the hard work to make this coat of many colors. And what is that saying to the other brothers? It's saying, yeah, you guys are regular, okay? But Joseph is a special son. Jacob goes out of his way to show the world that Joseph is his favorite and that the other brothers are just kind of there. Extremely hurtful. Extremely hurtful thing to do. Well, how do his brothers respond? Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Could not. Did not have the ability to. They were so hurt by their father's actions that they took it out on Joseph. They literally could not say anything peacefully, much less lovingly, to their brother. Because every time Joseph would show up on the scene, he was rocking that coat, and they knew immediately what that meant. Joseph is rejoicing in the fact that he's got this preferential status with the father and that they are just regular and that there's nothing unique or special or important about them. How many of you have ever felt that way? You run into a certain person and they remind you of your own insecurity. And the other person doesn't even know what's happening. It happens all the time. Ladies, no? I don't like her. Why don't you like her? Because they're digging up your own insecurity. That's why. You see, the brothers were getting all of their value from their father's opinion of them. Can you blame them? Now look, I know what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to do is take Joseph's side, and the brothers are horrible and terrible. That's what you're supposed to do. I'll tell you something. When I was a little kid, I was a middle child, okay, so, you know, Jeremy knows this because he knows me pretty well. When I was a middle child. I was not the preferred kid, okay? I was not the preferred son. My older brother was a golden boy. He never did anything. I mean, he really never did anything wrong. He never did anything wrong, okay? And my little brother was a baby, and I always got in trouble for beating him up, okay? So I was the bad sheep. So I'd go in my room and read this story, and I was completely on the side of the brothers because I felt exactly like them. Because... They were getting all of their value from Jacob's opinion of them. This is very, very difficult to work out of as a child. 
right? Because all you know of God is essentially your parents, is your father, is your mother. So if that is where you're basing all of your value and all of your worth is to your dad's opinion of you, of course this is going to be hurtful, and of course you're going to hate your brother. Here's something I'll say, though. While it is completely understandable that our insecurities are probably justified in a human sense, we've got to figure out really quickly where to locate our value because if we don't, it will end up making us do really terrible things to people that we do genuinely love. And I think at some level, even though the text says that his brothers hated him, I think deep down somewhere, and you're going to see this later on in the narrative, they did love their brother. But they could not separate the pain of their father from the love that they had for their brother because their brother embodied both of them. So they hated him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. Now, I'm going to summarize. We're going to skip to verse 18. Here's what happens later on in the narrative. Joseph has this dream. And in this dream, essentially, his brothers were going to bow down to him. Okay? So this is the dream. He wakes up and he says, hey, guys. And he shows up in his multicolored coat. Hey, guys. Guess what? I had a dream. And they say, yeah? What's your dream? He says, well... Uh, basically, long story short, I'm going to rule the world, and you guys are going to bow down to me. Including mom and dad. Huh? How do you think that went over? Bad. Very bad. That's a very insightful young man. Okay? Here, here's why this didn't go over well. Because on the one hand, the multicolored coat says that the father loves him more than anybody else. The dream says that God is putting him above everybody else. They couldn't handle that. They could not handle that at all. So, let's get down to verse 18. Now here's what's happening. Jacob the father sends the brothers down to go and uh, do the little shepherding thing. Joseph, for some reason, is held behind. And Jacob tells Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers to see how they're doing. Because Jacob doesn't trust that the brothers are going to do well. Because remember, he gave a bad report about them earlier. So Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. Verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. He said, I thought, I thought he, they loved him. I mean, they, they want to kill him. Just hold on. They conspired to kill him. This is why I said, if you don't get this insecurity thing down quickly, you're going to end up doing and saying horrible things to people. Now they want to murder this dude. They want to kill him. They said to one another, watch this. Here comes the dreamer. See, this is what happens. Everybody's just basically just going through life, just normal people, and then you have some people who start believing crazy, impossible things about themselves and about what God's going to do through them. And when you become the type of person who starts believing what God actually says about you, immediately you're going to run into resentment. Who are you really? Look, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 1 that you were created in the image and likeness of God. 
The scripture says in Psalm chapter 8 that he crowned you with glory and honor. That's what the scriptures say. You are crowned with glory and honor just on virtue of the fact that you are a human being. Now, somewhere along the line, all of us forgot that story. And all of us are just going along life and basing our value and our worth about what other people say about us, what our family says about us, what our community says about us, what the media says about us, what the magazine says about us, what work says about us. And all of us have forgotten that. And then somebody wakes up and says, wait a second. No. I'm crowned with glory and honor regardless of what anybody says. And you start walking and talking as if you're some king or queen or something. Well, let me ask you a question. When it says you're crowned with glory and honor, who gets crowned? Kings and queens get crowned. Princes and princesses get crowned. So here you are walking around like you're royalty or something, and immediately people will start getting angry at you. They will confuse that for arrogance. I had a, a preacher one time said that Joseph was arrogant to tell his brothers about the dream. That's not arrogant. How is it arrogant to say back to people what God has said about you? That's not arrogant. You see, but when people haven't awoken to that reality, they're going to automatically look at that as arrogance. And they're going to resent you. So there they go, there's the dreamer. How many of you have actual dreams anymore? You know, when you were younger, you know, you had stars in your eyes. You know, my son, one day's going to be a doctor, one, one's going to be a Navy SEAL, one's going to be this, one's going to be that. And then you get older, and you know, you, you, you hear this term, right? The real world. You know what the real world is? The real world is a mindset that says none of your dreams are going to come true. That's what people mean when they say the real world. They say, you're in a dream world, but this is the real world. The real world is where all your dreams are shattered and destroyed. And so they resent people that still have the, the silliness to believe that their dreams might actually come true. You resent that guy. Because we're in the real world. We want you to be just as hopeless and miserable as us. So come, come, welcome to the real world where you, you stop believing in your dreams. Now look, am I saying that everything that you imagine, you know, when I was five years old, I wanted to fly. Am I going to be able to fly? No. But I believe in a certain future that's better than this future. I believe good things for my family. I believe good things for my city. I believe good things for all of you. I believe impossible things for all of you. I believe we can achieve things together as a group in the power of God that nobody would have thought possible. There are nine kids, none of us graduated seminary in a living room two years ago. We had zero startup money and we planted a church together. That's impossible. We've done amazing things. We've actually changed federal laws, literally. Some of us have. Okay? We can do amazing things, but you have people that are in the real world and they will resent dreamers. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Hey, I got this from Brian. Do you really, really believe the story that a man 2,000 years ago died and then rose from the dead three days later? Sorry, dude. You see, people go, man, that doesn't happen. Go into the real world. 
Well, you know what the resurrection says? The resurrection says that the dream world and the real world combine in the person of Jesus. What is that? Because in every awesome fantasy story, the good guy does some sacrificial thing, and it looks like all hope is lost, and then out of nowhere there's this curveball, and they live happily ever after. Amen. We're saying in history that actually happened. Glory to God. Amen. Right. So, what that means is if that's true, then at some level we can still believe in the impossible to happen. Because the impossible broke into history. So there's the dreamer, and the people in the real world present the dreamer. Okay, we present the dreamer. Now, what are we going to do with him? Come now, let us kill him, and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and watch. We will see what will become of his dreams. This is what has happened to many of you. This is what we call spiritual warfare. I hope you understand this. When you heard about Chloe. Chloe stood up here, and she said she used to hate waking up in the morning. And Chloe used to say she would look at the future and think everything was hopeless. Listen to what they said. Let's kill him and throw her into a pit. Isn't that what it was like in a pit there, Chloe? Yep. See, this is how some of you are. You used to have dreams, and you got assaulted by this world, and they killed your spirit, and now you're in a pit. Isn't that true? Somewhere along the line, you're like, man, that was all a lie. All those dreams I had, that was a lie. I'm nothing, and here I am in this pit, and that's all I'll ever be, and I'm never going to get out. This is how Satan works. If you believe that the top of that pit is closed and you're stuck in it, you're gone. If you believe that, you live in that reality and you completely forget about your dreams, you're gone. This is how the devil conspires against people. Now look, I'm not into mumbo-jumbo. I don't believe there's a devil under every rock, but I do know that this is how he works because I've talked to enough of you to see a pattern. It happened with many of you. Some of you right now are in the pit. Some of you right now are like, man, I'm dead already. Some of you today, this morning, dealt with suicidal thoughts. Some of you today were told that you'd be better off dead. So this is not mumbo-jumbo. This is real life. Here's a biblical explanation. You have enemies around you that are, that are designing your destruction. And this is the playbook. We want to kill their dream. This is what's going to... We'll see what will become of his dreams. They resented the man just for having dreams. How many of you realize this? See, you don't know who you are. Even as a human being, I haven't even gotten to the Christian part of it. Just as a human being, you don't even know who you are. You don't know that you're crowned with glory and honor, but you know who does? Your enemy knows you're crowned with glory and honor. And you know what? Your enemy resents that God crowned you with glory and honor. Satan resents that. Why do you think why do you think he's inspiring all these people to murder these little children? <clears throat> he hates them and he hates the mother. See? The devil knows your crown of glory and honor, so he's going around trying to destroy you and convince you that you're nothing and throw you in a pit. He knows that. You don't know it. You've forgotten. 
Now verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Okay. So here's Reuben interceding on behalf of Joseph. Now, think about the picture. Joseph is on the way there. Joseph doesn't know the discussion. Joseph is completely unaware that his brothers are planning to murder him. Here's Reuben interceding, meaning speaking on behalf of Joseph before Joseph even knew it. Who does that remind you of? Huh? Jesus. Some of you don't even know Jesus yet. I want to tell you something. He's been interceding for you. He's been praying for you. He's been holding back the forces of Satan from you more than you already even know. You think Jesus just now started praying for Chloe and getting Chloe delivered? I, I don't know if she wants me to share this, but I'm going to. Chloe, please forgive me. She almost died a year or so ago. Alcohol poor, okay, she said it. She almost died. Why is she still with us? Because Jesus was interceding on her behalf even before she knew him. This big brother Jesus saying, no, don't lay a hand on him. Don't shed any blood. The reason you're still alive today, even with all of your suicidal thoughts, is because you had someone interceding on your behalf before you even knew it. You're just walking around completely clueless of what's happening, just like Joseph, and you had somebody that was interceding, that was stepping into the middle, and notice, look what it says. Reuben's goal was to what? Verse 22, to restore him to what? To his father. Why? What's going on in Reuben's head? Reuben's looking at Joseph, and he goes, one, we're about to kill our brother. That's bad. But two, what is it going to do to dad? if we come home and there's no Joseph. See, see, Reuben isn't just thinking about not killing Joseph. He's also thinking about the heart of Jacob because Jacob loves Joseph that much. He knows that Joseph is Jacob's favorite. So what's happening in the heart of Jesus with Chloe? She's like, man, I can't let Chloe die. She's one of God's favorites. I can't do that. Don't you understand? Jesus didn't just die on the cross for you. He did it for the Father. He can't show up to heaven without you. No, you're a love that is said in John chapter 17. God the Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. That's what the scripture says. So yes, he died for you and he wants you to go to heaven. He doesn't want you to go to hell. That's true. But, but he also loves the Father. Amen. And that's not a good day in heaven if he shows up and one of us is missing. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 6. This is the will of my Father that none of all that he's given me should perish. Not one. There's a certain number. God said, you need to bring him home, Jesus. Jesus actually said it was a command in John chapter 6. And every single one is going to be brought home. 
Reuben can't stand the thought of not restoring Joseph to Jacob. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Now, why would you do that? But I mean, verse 24, it says they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Why not just take him and chuck him into the, into the pit? Why take the robe off of him? That represented their jealousy so much. It represented so much. It was, I don't know. I think maybe it was a reflection of the honor of, the, of their father. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This is how, look, here's the point. It is not, this is so important, it is not good enough for the devil that he kill you. He wants to dishonor you first. It's not good enough for the devil that he kill you. He's got to dishonor you first. He's got to completely strip you of all your honor, all of your dignity, all of your privileged status as an image bearer of God is going to completely take that from you and then he wants to kill you. That's how he operates. This is why it's so important to ground yourself in what the Bible says about you. Because that's the way you keep your robe on. The only way the devil can take your robe off is if you believe lies. He has no authority to do that to you. You let him do that to you when you don't believe the truth. Some of you, this is the first time you're hearing this at your crown with glory and honor. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. I brush my teeth in the morning. I see myself. I don't see a lot of glory and honor there. Well, stop looking at yourself through your eyes and look at yourself through the eyes of God in the scripture. Amen. Here's the thing, though. All of us, because of our sin, have taken off the robe and have rolled around in dirt and mud and muck and mire. Is that not true? Amen. Haven't you? I had the honor yesterday, me and a couple of my closest friends in the world, I had the honor of washing the feet of uh, people in our church. And I, you know, you're supposed to say, oh, it's an honor to serve you. It's polite. I'm telling you, it was an honor. I'm washing these feet. God said to me, these are the feet of people who are going to rule the world someday. Literally. I said, man, this is a crazy thing. But here's the thing. All of us, our feet have taken us crazy places. We've rolled around in muck and mire and dirt. And we've gotten the road completely and totally dirty and filthy. God gave us this beautiful thing called being a human being, and we've taken it and completely wrecked it. All of us have. Now, what are we going to do with that? Well, let's see. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 3. Curveball. Zechariah chapter 3, still in the Old Testament. Zechariah was a prophet. <clears throat> And he had a vision, and it was one of the most beautiful visions of all time. So in Zechariah chapter 3, look at this, starting from verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a man that is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed, watch this, with filthy garments. Now remember, the garments of the priest, if you look in Leviticus, the garments of the priest were blue and purple. They were amazing. And God said, I want that so the priest can have glory and honor among the people. Very similar concept to Jacob, right? So the priests were supposed to have these amazing garments. And look what it says. Joshua, the high priest, was clothed, verse 3, in filthy garments. Why? Because... He was a sinner. And you will notice that the angel, the Satan, is accusing Joshua the high priest. He's accusing him of sin. And notice what the angel of the Lord says. The Lord rebuke you. God has chosen him. Then the angel of the Lord said, that's not true. Joshua never sinned. No. You know why? Because Satan was right when he was accusing him. But see, the angel said, well, we know that he's a sinner, but God chose him. See that? This is the gospel. You got dirty, filthy clothes, and you're being accused by Satan, and most of the time when he accuses us of sin, he's right, we've committed them, so there you are, you're standing before God in all of his courts in your filthy garments. Listen to what happens in Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. Here's what it means to be a Christian. You're creating the image and likeness of God. You're crowned with glory and honor. You've got these beautiful clothes. You go out into the world and you make a complete wreck of your beautiful clothes that God gave you. You just destroy everything. Holes, mud, dog, stuff, grossness, horribleness. You just rolled around in horribleness. And there you are standing before God in his courts and you have an accuser saying to you, look at the filth. You're standing before God in this filth. You're really nasty. And you have someone who rebukes the accuser and says, shut your mouth, I chose him. Be quiet, I chose her. Amen. What does it mean to be a Christian? You put your faith in Christ and he takes off your nasty robe and he gives you one that was better than the one he gave you before. Amen. That's the gospel. You know what's interesting is that Jesus, when he got handed over to the Roman soldiers, they put this, this uh, purple robe on him to mock him. You know, oh, you're supposed to be a king. Well, we'll put a purple robe on you and smack you silly. There's your king. And then it says they stripped him of that robe. You see, Jesus was the one person who never wants got his robe dirty. Not once. And yet, Jesus had his robe stripped from him. And they beat him almost to death. And then they crucified him with no robe. Why? Because Jesus is thinking, if I don't do this, I'm not going to be able to give Chloe her new robe. 
I'm not going to be able to give Brian his new robe. So it was worth it to Jesus. He allowed himself to be stripped of that so that you could be clothed in righteousness. This is the gospel. This, by the way, is what separates a Christian from a non-Christian. You know what separates a Christian from a non-Christian? A Christian looks at their nasty robe and says, this is not going to do. I need help. You know what a non-Christian does? They look at their nasty robe and say, oh, we got the fix for this. Give me, a, give me some thread and needle. I'll fix the holes myself. Oh, give me some Clorox. I'll fix. No. You can't, you can't cleanse your own robe. That's not the way it works. You just need a completely new one. What does it mean to trust Jesus? Here's what it means to trust Jesus. What it means to trust Jesus is to say, okay, you want me, you want, you want me to be clean and pure and not just pure, glorious before you. You want me to walk around with all this honor. I've completely dishonored myself. I've completely dishonored you. But you said that you died to restore that to me. I'll take it. That's Christianity. That's faith in Christ. That's all it is. Jesus died in shame. He died robeless. As a matter of fact, it says that the Roman soldiers were gambling for his garments, completely robeless, so that you could once again walk with your head high as one of God's favorites. And this time... Nobody will take it from you. And since the robe is Jesus' robe, there's no dirt or anything that will stick to it. You'll be completely, purely spotless. That's what Revelation says when it looks at the church. It says the bride comes down in a spotless robe. Glory and honor. You see, the gospel isn't just God wants to save you from your sin. The gospel is God wants to put glory on you because that was the original goal of being an image bearer of God is he wants to see glory when he looks at you. And he wants you to see glory when you look at your brother and sister. This is why it was so easy to wash your feet last night because there was so much glory in that room. I had a friend of mine say, man, I got an infected foot. I don't care. That's a, that's a glorious infected foot. That foot's going to rule the world one day beside me and with Jesus because of the gospel. Amen. Now watch this. Remove the filthy garment from him. And to him he said, I have taken and wicked iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure garments. And look, verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's what this means. What this means is that we, as human beings, get to take part in the restoration of another person. So the angel of the Lord says, get him a new garment. And then we say, yeah, get him a new turban too. See, we get to take part in that. 
This is what it means when we're going out and telling people the gospel. When Jesus sends us out to tell people about the story, about the robe and the cross and the resurrection, that is us saying, Jesus, do something. When you're praying for somebody, we're saying, Jesus, put a clean turban on their head. We're taking part in the cleansing of another person. This is an amazing thing that we get to do. When you walk out into the world and people are beat down, they're in the pit, the seal is closed, they're completely hopeless, and through the gospel, we get to say, actually, no, because the stone was rolled away, and if the stone was rolled away, then the pit that you're in, that's going to get rolled away, we're going to bring you out, we're going to take off that horrible robe, and we're going to get a new robe, a new headdress, and we're going to take over the world together, that's the gospel. You go, oh, oh, the people in your living room, they're going to rule the world. Really? Is that so? I sound like a dreamer. I sound crazy. I don't know. 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm cashing. I'm putting all of my chips in that basket, man. That's right. He's a real historical figure. There is no atheist of any credibility that will deny that Jesus lived. Nobody will deny that Jesus died. And here's the crazy thing. No atheist will deny that the first Christians were walking around telling everybody that they saw him risen from the dead. Those are all facts. These are from the mouth of atheists, okay? Now, explain that to me. You know, I, I study Islam. I, you know, I, listen, I got Muslim friends. They don't say that Muhammad rose from the dead. Buddha, they don't say Buddha rose from the dead. Nobody would even have the audacity and be silly enough to claim that their leader rose from the dead. There's no major religion that says that. Judaism, they don't say Moses rose from the dead. Andrew, there's no, I don't believe that there's any other God that died like Jesus died. Correct. So, Correct. I humble that. So, look, I understand that what I just said about my friends in the living room was crazy, all right? But, but, I have reasons for my crazy. There's reasons for it. All right, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray that we would believe that message, that unbelievable crazy message. I, I'm going to pray that God would restore some of your dreams. Here's the other thing I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would give you dreams bigger than the silly dreams that you had when you were a kid. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel. God, thank you for Jacob and Joseph. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, like Tiffany said, for your humility to do that, to unrobe yourself for us while we were nailing you to the cross, Jesus. God, I pray that you would restore dreams tonight, God. I pray that you breathe life into the dreams of my friends. God, I pray that you would bring people to yourself tonight. Jesus, thank you for praying for people before they even know you to restore them to the Father. God, I pray that you would put dreams in the hearts and the minds of people tonight that are big, that are about your kingdom, that are about your story. God, I pray they'd abandon their small, selfish ideas of what they think a good life would be and align themselves with your dream, God, and your movement that you started 
in the garden and on the cross and in the resurrection. God, I pray that you would bring people out of their pits of depression and anxiety and whatever else is holding them down. God, I pray that they would just begin to believe that the stone is rolled away, God, and that you're going to come down and bring them out of it, Jesus. I pray that you would give us a faith to believe the gospel and the fullness of it. We thank you, God, for being able to work with you in redeeming the world and restoring your broken images and clothing our friends with glory and honor as they should be because that is your will for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.